listening to the Citizens Church podcast. Citizens Church exists to saturate Bryan College Station, Texas with the good news and love of Jesus. To learn more about Citizens Church, visit us online at citizensbcs.com. Today's message is from Pastor Ben Rush. Thanks, Steph. Hey, before we get going, uh, can you throw that picture up there? Do y'all know what these are? Have you seen these things? Go to the next slide. You got another picture? What is the deal, what is the deal with these boots? Have, who has not seen the boots that I'm showing right now? Okay, who ha- okay, put your hand in there. Who has seen the boots that I, I'm showing right now? The big red boots, Astro boots, cartoon boots. Uh, guess how much money these things are? $350. All right. If you would turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. I'll connect the dots for you later. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, and then I'll pray. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Let's pray. Father, we're here to meet with you. We are here to listen to you. We are not in a hurry. We just want to sit and wait on you. God, would you be glorified in this place? As we open up your word today, would you make it come alive? Would you transform our lives? The things that weigh us down, the things that keep us up at night, the things that we're worried about, the relationships in our life that are broken the things in our life that aren't just the way that we want them to be. God, would you speak to us about those things today as we open up your word? Transform us today. Holy Spirit, we need you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. American scholar Robert Bella says that we are living in an era of expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. He says, quote, expressive individualism holds that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. Now, this is good in some cases. Uh, Women and people of color have been silenced for too long, and we need their intuition to be expressed. We want to hear, not the train right now. We want to hear their voices. We need to hear the voices of the immigrant and the marginalized. They have a unique core that our society should and needs to know. But if you would, for just a moment, take all of that good and set it aside for a moment and think of the flip side of the coin of expressive individualism. Think for a moment about the dangers of expressive individualism. 
Carl Truman said, if the individual's inner identity is defined by sexual desire, then he or she must be allowed to act out on that desire in order to be an authentic person. So for example, what about people? I'm I'm gonna give you a few examples. Expressive individualism. What about people who identify as animals? It's not a joke. It's like real life stuff. What about people born in one country that identify as someone that was born in another country? I'm not making this stuff up. What about people who identify as both male and female? People who were born male who identify as female. People who are born female who identify as male. What about people who believe that sexually molesting a child is normal and okay? Or people who believe that if a man hits a woman, they must have deserved it. All of these people are born in the Imago Dei, the image of God, and should be loved as Jesus has taught us to love one another and love our neighbor as ourselves. But what happens when expressive individualism just kind of goes too far? What happens when one country believes that their race is superior to another race and they murder six million people of that other race? In other words, is there a limit to it? Is there a limit? The modern self is one where authenticity is achieved by acting outwardly in accordance with one's inward feelings. Think about that. You're, work, you're working this out on the inside, trying to figure out who you are on the inside. And so whatever you define yourself as on the inside is what you're acting out on the outside. That's the norm right now. This is the culture we live in. My, my belief is to be truly authentic. If, if you, though, however, cha- challenge my, myself, my, the way that I have identified myself, my authentic self, then you are a threat and should be silenced and neutralized. Do you see the irony here? Live your truth is the day that we live in. What's true for you is true for you, and it's not necessarily true for me, but what's true for me is, is true for me, and it may not be necessarily true for you. It's confusing. I'm not talking about opinions about like, who's the best coffee in town, which I have opinions of. If you decide to wear certain clothes and not other clothes, if an electric vehicle is superior than a powered, gas-powered vehicle, living your truth, living as an authentic self, as you define self within your own brain, eliminates the idea that there could be ultimate truth of any kind, especially a truth that is defined by Scripture. And so expressive individualism uh, in that paradigm, Christian faith is viewed as offensive and oppressive. Christianity is archaic. It is bigoted. In fact, the irony of the cultural moment that we live in is that all other variations and expressions of truth are acceptable except Christianity. And so for quite some time, cultural scientists have said that we are living in a post-Christian era, an era that has moved away from Jesus, a culture that is a reaction against Christianity in the way of Jesus. We've been told that spiritual hunger is fading almost to the point of no return and that millennials are a lost cause. Yet over the last few weeks and months, you guys know, it seems like the tides are shifting. There's something changing around the United States and college campuses led by millennials. There's an awakening, a desire for Jesus, a desire for purity, a desire to know God. People are hungry to know truth. Not multiple options of truth, but what is the truth? They want to know it. And the good news about this is that belief in Jesus is profoundly plausible in our society. 
Barna recently did a study. Uh, David Kinneman was a part of it. They conducted a, a Barna study. It, it showed this. Uh, 55% of people, uh, the question was asked, was Jesus a real person? 55% of people, com- they, they said yes. They're completely certain that, yes, he was a real person. 25% believe that, you know, they're, I don't know, somewhat certain about Jesus being a real person. 10% haven't thought about it. And 10% say that Jesus was not a real person. But 55% are completely certain, right? 25% somewhat certain. Next slide. 77% of people believe in a God or a higher power. 74% want to grow spiritually. And 44% are more open today than they were before the pandemic. All this is good. But it does present a problem. What do you actually believe? What do you actually believe? 74% of people believe in God or a higher power. What do you believe about God? Why do you believe what you believe? In Latin, the word is credo, which means I believe. It's where we get the English word creed. In other words, the word creed means belief. A creed is a belief or a distillation. It's the extraction of what is essential in the meaning of the most important parts or the aspects of something. A creed is a confession It's a statement of one's principles and beliefs. Now, in Christian subculture, uh, belief has become an ascent to a set of propositions. This is what Thomas Aquinas argued for in his five ways, but that is not what belief means. It's more than simply intellectual ascent. Intellectual ascent being, uh, hey, this is the truth, and in order to get to the truth, I have to climb my way up to, you know, like think the right way and do the right thing, repeat after me, all that kind of stuff. Ascend to the higher way, that's the belief. But belief... And faith is much more than that. It's much more than intellectual assent. It's not just an act of commitment to a certain set of beliefs. It's more than just blindly accepting something based on tradition as well. This is why thousands, if not millions of people leave the church because their entire framework for the way of Jesus has been built upon their mother or father's faith. It's more than intellectual assent. It's more than tradition. This is an entirely new worldview that changes everything. The early church believed in a creed, in a credo, in a way of life. And over the next 12 to 13 weeks, we are going to be looking at the Apostles' Creed. And my task today is to set this up. It's going to feel more like a seminary class than a sermon but I'm just looking for the off-ramp to just like get after it. So just FYI, if you're not taking notes, now's a great time to take notes. We're gonna go fast. All right, you with me? All right. The early church believed in a creed, in a credo, and they would give their lives literally for this creed. They would recite this creed during baptisms. This is when it was originally used. Some people say that they were dunked three times. I believe in God the Father, dunk. I believe in Christ the Son, dunk. I believe in the Holy Spirit, dunk. Three times. Maybe they would recite it before or after. Maybe they do a variation of all of those. And if they were baptized in a certain country, they could lose their lives. This is true for people in the world right now as I am talking. Belief is a profound trust. It's more than knowledge. It's more than understanding. A creed is a commitment to a certain set of values. This is how Karl Barth put it. 
So faith means trust. Trust is the act in which a man may rely on the faithfulness of another, that his promise holds, and that what he demands, he demands of necessity. I believe means I trust. No more must I dream of trusting myself. I no longer require to justify myself, to excuse myself, to attempt to save and preserve myself. This is the most profound, I'm sorry, let me say that again, this most profound effort of man to trust to himself, to see himself as in the right has become pointless. I believe not in myself. I believe in God, the father, the son, and the Holy ghost. Question I want to ask to you today is what do you believe? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about the Holy spirit? A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thought that we will ever have. It's the most important thing to us. To believe is not just to agree. It's not just trusting God. It's not just that we have new commitments and new things to do, but it is a combination of all of these things and more. We live in a culture where we want to understand what we believe before we take a step of faith. We want to understand everything that goes into the equation. We want to understand like the background information, who's going to be there, what's it going to be like, what's the vibe like, what's it going to feel like. Before I say yes to whatever God's called me to do, I've got a, an Excel spreadsheet that I need him to like pay attention to. That's, that's the world that most of us live in in one way or another. We want to understand first, and then we want to have faith. I'll tell you a story real quick about my own experience. Anybody been to Disney World or D- Disneyland? Anybody in the room? Yeah, yeah, just a few. Any massive fans of Walt Disney in the room? Anybody want to admit it? The first time I went to Disney, I was, I was 26 years old, 26. And before that, uh, literally every Christmas break and spring break, my family would go skiing. That's what I did from the time I was like four until I graduated high school. That's what we did. We went skiing all over the place. Not Ashley's family. Ashley, they always went to Disney. And so Ashley talked about Disney a lot. All my friends would, you know, say, oh, Disney, Disney. Oh, my gosh, Disney World. It's so magical. Oh, my gosh, I love Disney. I've been 10 times, but I've got to go another 10 more. It's just like nothing like it. It's like freak me out. I'm like, I went to Astro World growing up. I lived in Houston. Disney was a theme park. I'm like, it's like Astro World. What's the big deal? I would see grown men wearing Mickey gear. I'm like, I don't get it. I don't understand. It's bizarre. So I go for the first time in 2007. I'm 26 years old. Ashley's parents take Ashley, me, Colbin. He's, real, he's like two years old. And by like hour one inside of the Magic Kingdom, I am looking for a a Mickey hat. Like, I'm on a hunt to find a Mickey hat. I'm taking photos with all the Disney characters. I've got my own little notebook and, like, all the Disney characters are, like, doing their signatures and stuff like that. For real. Yeah. We went to the, whatever it's called, the light parade at night at the Magic Kingdom. I don't know if they still do that. It's way past my, it's way past my bedtime, by the way. I think it's, like, at 11 o'clock or midnight. And we've been walking all day in the sun, like sweating to death. And uh, I'm watching all of this stuff go on. And I, like my tears are like welling up within my eyes. Like, I love Disney. 
Now, anytime I'm like within an hour of Disneyland or Disney World, we are making a trip to go to Disney. It's just what we do now. I had to see it to believe it. We want to move from understanding the faith. We want to research. We want to analyze. We want to think about it. We want to understand what's going on first. And then we want to believe. Here's what St. Augustine said. We believe not because we understand, but so that we can understand. We believe not because we understand, but so that we can understand. Following in the way of Jesus is to move from faith first, then to understanding second. Faith seeking understanding. And the earliest followers of Jesus started to see and experience God through the person Jesus. They were blown away. Their worlds were literally torn upside down, turned upside down. They saw blind people healed. They saw people that had never walked before start to walk. They saw people that couldn't hear from the time they were born start to hear for the first time. Two fish and five loaves feed 10,000 people. Only 5,000 men were counted. They say that another five, maybe 7,000 women and children were there. Their lives have turned upside down. They're like, this is crazy. They see dead people come to life. They see Jesus himself executed, beat to death on a cross. They, they see him buried. And then they see him three days later, walking through walls like you do when you're Jesus. And they're like, mind blown. This is crazy. Their worlds were turned upside down. And so they had to write about what they saw and experienced. And they started to write those beliefs down. And they spoke them out loud to one another. And it's important to see that these creeds are what they are. It's important to see them as they are, to understand why belief is important and why we need our own creeds. Because without it, we'll just create lesser creeds. We'll create belief statements about other things. Churches come up with other mission statements that are all basically the same. We need to know, not from the, in, uh, not from the inside what we believe, but from the outside. We need to see and look around at what God says about himself in scripture and then form our identity based on those things. Are you with me? All right. There's a few creeds in the New Testament. I'm just, I'm, I'm building a case. I hope you're with me. I'm going to start with Nathaniel's creed. It's in John chapter 1, verse 47. It'll be on the screen, I think. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Verse 49. Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. This is Nathaniel's creed. He's making a statement of belief. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Next creed, Peter's creed, Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You're the son of the living God. He's making a claim. He's, he's staking a claim. He's writing it down. He is putting everything that he is on this statement. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Paul had a creed as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. 
Some say that this is like the very first kind of inkling of a creed, a written creed. Philippians chapter 2, a long poem about Jesus. Some people say that's another early edition of a creed. And then from there, the early church started to write down their own creeds. They weren't making this stuff up on their own. Many of these original, these men uh, wrote creeds based on the creeds and teachings of the original disciples. Exhibit one, Ignatius of Antioch. He's one of those men. Tradition says that he was a disciple of John, the apostle, John that wrote the gospel of John, one, two, and third John, and uh, the revelation. Many believe Ignatius to be one of the three most important church fathers. Ignatius wrote an early creed in AD 107. This is what he said. Uh, Be deaf, therefore, when any would speak to you apart from Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was descended from the family of David, born of Mary, who was truly born, both of God and of the Virgin, truly took a body. For the word became flesh and dwelt among us without sin. He ate and drank truly, truly suffered persecution under Pontius Pilate, was truly and not in appearance crucified and died, who was also truly raised from the dead and rose after three days, his father rising him up and after having spent 40 days with the apostles, was received up to the father and sits on his right hand waiting till his enemies are put under his feet. That's Ignatius's creed. This was something that he wrote down and was taught to the early believers. They're passing it around and other early disciples are writing their belief statements and their creeds. Here's just next slide, just a few of them. We got Arrhenius, a disciple of Polycarp, who was also a disciple of the apostle John. He wrote a creed in AD 180. Tertullian wrote a creed in AD 200. Cyprian of Carthage wrote a creed in AD 250. Origin of Alexandria wrote a creed about AD 230. Lucian of Antioch, in AD 300, Eusebius in AD 325, and Cyril of Jerusalem in AD 350. Then, right before then, in, in AD 341, a Roman creed started to pop up around the provinces in and around the city of Rome. In all of these places where the disciples had gone and planted churches all over the kingdom, this creed started to pop up. It was cleaned up by a couple of dudes between AD 390 and AD 590, Rufinus and Fortinaeus, great names, by the way, Rufus. Um, and around that time, scholars think that what is known as the Apostles' Creed was formalized. Now, I'm going to read it now. Later on, we're going to read it together. Here we go. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He ascended, descended into hell, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Now, for some of you, that may bother you, depending on the background that you came from in the church. I want to list a couple of things that might have been like, what kind of church is this? I'm not really sure. One is the Holy Catholic Church. Here's what they meant the global, united, entire church. That was the original meaning of the word Catholic. This, again, was written in the early 300s, 200s maybe. And also he descended into hell. There's all sorts of beliefs about that and teachings. We're gonna clear that up in a few weeks for you, okay? 
if anybody has any questions. The Apostles' Creed was not written by the Apostles themselves, but it was the basic teaching of the Apostles handed down from generation to generation to generation. It is a summary of the Christian faith. It is the way of Jesus. It's true from, for all Christians, regardless of denomination. It's believed to be orthodox by all mainline Christians. And in some denominations, it is read every single week in a gathering much like this. It's not just saying, I believe in salvation. It's saying, I believe in the Trinity. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. Karl Barth said, in the credo, the church bows before that God whom we did not seek and find, who rather has sought and found us. The creed is important to the people of God because as Christianity spread, it was important to define the basis, the foundation of the way of Jesus and to establish it clearly what do we believe? What do we believe? Originally, the Apostles' Creed was created to, to fight against fractures and heresies in the church. These divergent beliefs uh, by networks within the church, they were five to six of these main groups that were predominantly problematic to the early church. I'm going to list them out real quick. Y'all with me? First group, the Ebonites believed that an angel or a heavenly Messiah figure entered uh, the body of the man Jesus at his baptism. That is not what scripture teaches. That was heresy. So the guys got together and they created the Apostles' Creed to fight against that. The Docetists denied that Jesus had a physical body. The Gnostics claimed that a wicked demigod created the world and that Jesus came to save us from that God by releasing our souls from our bodies with the secret knowledge of primeval origins. Very interesting. The syncretists were essentially pagans. They blended all of the different religions based on the geography that they were in. And so there might be Christianity and Buddhism and a little bit of pagan worship and all that kind of, all that stuff mixed in together. That's what the syncretists believed. And the gospel was diluted. And so these men came up with the Apostles' Creed to fight against that. The Marcionites uh, uh, attempted to play off the God of creation against the God of redemption. It was as, as if Jesus came to fight against the God of the Old Testament or something like that. It's like super bizarre and weird. We came up with the Apostles' Creed. The Aryans believed that Jesus wasn't divine. He was just a created being or a supreme angel or something. And so many of these were, they had a flavor of Christianity. They kind of like seemed a little bit like it. And then you kind of lean in. And you're like, what are you talking about? Uh, no, 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 no. I don't think so. I don't think that's it. And so there's this widespread misunderstanding of the way of Jesus. And the creeds helped to give definition to what they were saying and what they were believing. The creed is a discipleship tool. This was their curriculum in the way of Jesus. They're catechizing people. They're taking people through a class line by line, teaching them the way of Jesus. In addition, it was super rare for people to have a copy of scripture with them on their person. I admitted slash confessed a couple of weeks ago that I have like 35 Bibles. It's ridiculous. Plus digital Bibles on my iPad and iPhone or whatever. Nobody had a physical copy of the Bible for the most part. And so the creed was written as a distillation, a summary of those writings so that people could carry them along in their heads. That's what they were created for. It's memorable. It's easy to distill. It can be shared with friends and neighbors and all that kind of stuff. But over time, there has been some pushback to the creed. There's been some pushback to the Apostles' Creed in the church and in the culture at large. Like for me personally, I did not grow up with the Apostles' Creed. 
The closest thing I had to the Apostles' Creed was a song by Rich Mullins that was later destroyed by, um, what was the name of the band that totally, who was it? Third Day. Yeah, Third Day. Totally ruined it. It was bad. And if you don't know who uh, Rich Mullins is or uh, Third Day, it's because I was born way back at the end of the 20th century. It was like a millennium ago. Um, Lots of weird stuff back then. It was a different time, pre-cell phones. Somehow I survived. Apparently, there were some challenges and pushbacks to the creed in the church. For example, some Baptists, Church of Christ, they have this uh, slogan or phrase. Sometimes they would have a sign in the church, and it would say something like, no creed but Christ. No creed but Christ. No creed but the Bible. You know, and it's like, yeah, okay. You know, there's this question about whether or not, like, this, the creed's not in the Bible. Great argument. That You are so right. But everything in the creed was actually from the Bible, so I don't see what the problem is. The same people give you a formula for how to come to Christ and how to evangelize and witness. And anyway, I digress. Philip Schaff said, the Bible is the word of God to man. The creed is man's answer to God. The Bible reveals the truth in the popular form of life. In fact, the creed states the truth in logical form of doctrine. The Bible is to believed and obeyed. The creed is to be professed and taught. The creed was created at a time. Like I said, people didn't have a, you know, a personal copy of the Bible. These simple formulas, the, the Apostles' Creed is not the only one. There's the Athanasian Creed, and there are others. Um, Nicene Creed, simple formulas that are written. Those are a little bit longer. The Apostles' Creed is short. It's memorable. It's easy to, to memorize. There were challenges to the Apostles' Creed also in larger culture, and that's because there are essentially three worldviews at work right now today. There are some false stories of belief that are in opposition to the way of Jesus. I'm going to run through these real quick. Empiricism, Romanticism, and Pragmatism. Empiricism says that I have to see it to believe it. That's my Disneyland experience. I have to see it to believe it. I think you guys are crazy. I don't, I don't believe it. I'm not going. I've been to Astral before. I rode the Viper and the Ultra Twister. And it was perfect. I don't need to go to Disney. And then I saw it, and I believed it. This is the ideology of Francis Bacon, John Locke, and David Hume. Empiricism says that experience alone should guide us. The experience that we have, oh, I this, had this experience one time, and so I think it's going to happen again. Uh, okay. If I see it, it's true. If I don't see it, it's not true. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody that's like, I just don't believe. I don't believe it. I don't believe that there's a color television. It's always something like that. It's like, seriously? Okay. Romanticism says, I'm going to believe. I'm not going to believe unless I feel it. I'm not going to believe unless I feel it on the inside. If it doesn't feel true, it's not true. But if I feel it, it is true. This is the philosophy of Rousseau and Nietzsche. Pragmatism, then, the third one, says that if it works, it's true. If it does not work, it's not true. But the way of Jesus is a completely different way of seeing everything, seeing the world, seeing God, seeing others, seeing yourself. And to believe in the Trinity means I trust God with all of my life. And because of this trust, I am compelled to action. We believe not because we feel it, although we might. We believe not because we've seen it. We might have seen some miracles of Jesus. We don't believe just because we think that it worked, although it does work. We simply believe because God says this was true about himself, is true about himself, and we believe in his word. Now, the Apostles' Creed 
is opposite of the creed of the culture. The creed of the culture is live your truth. The Apostles' Creed stands in direct opposition to that creed and belief system. So I'm going to give you four reasons why we need the creed in this setup message for the next 12 to 13 weeks, and then we're going to worship and respond. Four reasons why we need the creed. Number one, proportion. Proportion. We need to have a balanced understanding of Scripture, the whole Bible, not just parts of it, the whole Bible. Some of you in this room are so focused on the Holy Spirit that you've forgotten about the Father. Some of you are so focused on the cross that you've forgotten the empty tomb. Some of you are so focused on the Father that you've avoided the Holy Spirit, but we need to have an appreciation and a knowledge of all facets of Scripture. The reality is that some of us in this room are so focused on ourselves that we have no appreciation or admiration for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You're just self-absorbed in your own little universe, and everything revolves around you. We need to have proportion. We need to be proportionate. Otherwise, you'll be disproportionate. You'll be like one of those people wearing the big red shoes, right? It's just like, it's the goofiest looking thing I've ever seen. There, I couldn't find, there, go to the next slide. There's some better pictures than these that I couldn't put up there, but they're huge. They're not in proportion to the rest of the person's body. It's bizarre. $350, I don't understand. We need proportion. We need definition. We need the Apostles' Creed to clarify what we believe. What do we, what do we believe about God? And why do we believe it? Now, understand, this conversation is not sexy. It's not like, oh, what do I believe about God? Oh, let me tell you. Let me get my dictionary out and just whatever. I get it. I'm not talking about secondary issues of belief. I am not talking about baptism in the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about women preachers. I'm not talking about elders leading a church or not leading a church. I'm talking about the primary stuff, the basics, the stuff that all followers of Jesus should believe. What is your theology of God? What do you believe about God? What are his attributes? What are his nature? What is his nature? What is his relationship to himself, to the world around us? And how does it interact with humanity? Those are the types of questions that I'm asking, that I'm asking. And this is important because large amounts of people deny that Jesus is God in the flesh. They deny that the Holy Spirit is a person. And these people consider themselves Christians. It's bizarre to me. We did an end-of-year survey here that some of you participated in. And there was a question on there that said, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to God? And there was like four or five people. No shame if it was you. I'm not trying to judge you. It was anonymous. I have no clue who you are. Four or five people said, no, he's not the only way to God. I'm like, what about my teaching in the Bible that you're carrying around makes you think that there's any other way to God than Jesus? It's so important what you believe. We need a proper definition of God. We need proportion, we need definition, and we need tradition. Now, we do need tradition. There's stuff about tradition that's whack and messed up and whatever, and yeah. But we do need tradition. Tradition isn't everything, but it's more than nothing. Uh, there's a, someone who described three types of 
ideology surrounding tradition in the church. I don't know if I've got a slide for that, but number one is sola scriptura, which is like, if it's not in the Bible, then whatever, you know, I don't believe it. And there's, there's a place for that. And I believe, and I'm not knocking that down and I respect that. And then there's a camp in the church that's like sola scripture plus tradition. It's like, I want to look at what's happening in the world at large and how God has used people over the last 2000 years and I, I'm not saying that it's up there with Scripture, but it does have a certain place that we should respect, we should consider, we should think about. Then the third uh, ideology is tradition only. Now, no, no shame on any of those crowds. We're aiming for number two. We want to be a church that's Bible-based. We're going to teach what the Word of God says, and we're also going to look at the historical doc- documents that are available to us to learn from them. We are a part of a heritage We're part of a a family. We're part of a community. It's historic. It goes back to the very beginning of humankind. It's a global tradition. It's multi-ethnic. It's multi-generational. It's diverse. We have been adopted into something bigger than Bryan College Station. We've been adopted into something way bigger than Texas or the United States of America or nationalism or whatever. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 is not about America. If my people who are called by my name should humble themselves and pray, that, is, that has to do with every person that is a child of God. France, people, are, are there Christians living in France? Oh my gosh, there are. So if they humble themselves and pray, will God not heal their land? Is this blasphemy? I, no, I don't think so. Okay, tradition is important. Tradition is important. Tradition is important. It's not everything, but it's more than nothing. Michael Bird says, a reticence to employ the creeds as instructive tools is largely born of a mixture of skepticism toward tradition, a rank bilicism that ignores historical theology and a certain arrogance that all who came before us were either incomplete or erroneous in their theology. The result is a theological travesty where a treasure trove of riches remains untouched. Even worse, by ignoring the creeds, those who consider themselves to be orthodox are effectively sawing off the theological branches upon which they are sitting. We need proportion. We need definition. We need tradition. Lastly, we need the Apostles' Creed for formation. We need the Apostles' Creed for formation, spiritual formation, proper formation, to be formed into the image of Jesus. We need direction. We need direction. We need a guide. We need to know where we're going. We need proper counsel. We don't need another book. We don't need another book on discipleship. Discipleship is more than a set of beliefs. It's more than a group of things you memorize. That is why I very rarely use the term discipleship. A disciple is a noun, not a verb. That's how it's used in scripture. Someone is a disciple. It's not a thing you do. It's a person that you are. And to be a disciple, we need direction. We need direction. We need a guide. We need help. We're in a battle against an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to take you down. He wants to get you trapped in sin. He wants you to become ineffective. He wants you to forget what your identity is in Christ. He wants you to forget all of that. He wants to lock you up. The Apostles' Creed helps us fight against us. On our worst days, there are days that I have that are terrible. Believe it or not. And I like you, struggle to think about a passage of scripture that would encourage me. I pray, I'm like, God, would you speak to me through your word? And I'm thumbing through it and I can't remember scriptures that I've memorized for one reason or another. And I end up in like Deuteronomy or something and I'm like, oh my gosh, or Numbers or Leviticus. And 
Like, what am I going to do? Lord, I need you to speak to me right now. I don't know what to pray. I don't know what to think. I'm confused. The Apostles' Creed is something that you can latch on in times like that, where you are stating what you believe to yourself and to the enemy. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his son, right? That's why we need the Apostles' Creed. Outside truths, outside truths forming our inner selves, not the other way around. I feel like I'm this thing. I feel like I'm an animal. I feel like I'm a bear. No, you're a human. You're created in the image of God. What are the outside truths that can form the inside of our hearts? If you believe in the forgiveness of sins, this should change everything, everything. If we believe in the forgiveness of sins like the Apostles' Greek, the Apostles' Creed says, this changes the kinds of things that you say to yourself. If we believe in the Apostles' Creed and we believe in the forgiveness of sins, you run to the one who forgives. You don't hide. You don't hide from God. You know Jesus forgives, and when you are sinned against, you are gracious and kind and forgiving to those people. So, we need the Apostles' Creed to help us in formation, to become formed in the image of God. We need tradition. We need it because of the way that it defines and clarifies things for us. And we need to grow proportionately. Not somebody that's just really focused on our pet thing, but somebody that's really formed into the full measure and stature of Jesus. Karl Barth said, I believe in credo in means that I am not alone. In our glory and in our misery, we are not alone. God comes to meet us and as our Lord and Master, he comes to our aid. We live and act and suffer in good and in bad days, in our perversity and in our rightness, in this confrontation with God. I am not alone, but God meets me one way or another. I am in all circumstances in company with him. That is, I believe in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What do you believe, guys? What do you believe what do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? This is what Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says that we read at the beginning of this time. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with their heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. And so, like I said, over the next 12 to 13 weeks, we're gonna un be unpacking this. We it line by line next week. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. What does that mean? How should that form me? And you probably have a lot of questions, but if you come back next week, we will begin to unpack all of this. For now, let us stand together and we're gonna read the Apostles' Creed together. We're gonna be reading this every Sunday over the next few weeks. And I, I wanna ask you, I wanna challenge you to do something that may be out of your comfort zone. I want you to commit to memorizing this over the next 12 to 13 weeks. And so if you do that right now, or if you're doing it, maybe look to the person on your right or left and say, hey, I'm gonna hold you accountable or something like that. Get their number and blow them up. Like, here's the deal. We're gonna have Bible quiz. We're gonna meet at the coffee shop and I'm gonna quiz you on the Apostles' Creed. I think you can do it. Some of you in the room have like every sports stat memorized of like, uh, like people that absolutely don't matter in a sport that nobody else has heard of. Some of you know every song by Olivia Rodrigo and Harry Styles. 
Some of you know useless information that isn't necessary for mixing at lame dinner parties. So I think you can memorize a few words about the Trinity. Are you with me? All right, when the early church gathered together and recited this creed, it was one of the greatest acts of faith and resistance to the Roman Empire. They were saying, we reject the narrative of the day. We believe in another kingdom, and, and Jesus is the king. And our allegiance is to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And by, by reciting this, we are rejecting materialism. We're rejecting all forms of idolatry. And, and that live your own truth framework, we're saying Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. It's an invitation to get your eyes up off of yourself and looking up to the Father and asking him for your identity and who he sees you as. The creed points to him. Let's read this together and then I'll pray. I believe in God, the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Why don't you bow your heads? Thanks for joining us today for the message. We hope it was encouraging to you. To learn more about Citizens Church, including gathering times and locations, or to give financial support, please visit citizensbcs.com. And again, thanks for listening to the Citizens Church Podcast.